Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Generosity Freak Show. I'm your host for today, Brady Josephson. Today, we get to chat with Emily Dalton. She's the Vice President of Product Management at Omatic Software. Omatic Software is a data integration company for nonprofits. So they work between CRMs and different databases and different data sources to make sure that nonprofits can use and harness their data in more effective ways to grow their fundraising and support. So that's one of the things that we talk about today is data and integrations. But we also dive into kind of product management and Emily's background and what that means for her and her world and her work, but also what it can mean for nonprofits. I think that whole mindset of a product manager or a product owner is really, really useful in taking those kind of lean approaches and using different data sources, qualitative and quantitative, to understand donors, understand programs uh, are increasingly useful and relevant. So we spend a little time talking about that and then end with a short discussion on how to grow generosity and how it really starts in the home. So that's the episode for today. Thank you, as always, for listening. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. I said, welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Welcome to the Freak Show. Here we go. It's just another Freak Show. Here we go. Hi, Emily. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Hey, Brady. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk to you. Yeah. So I heard you uh, speaking about data, a subject that I uh, love uh, on a panel and thought, well, why don't we kind of set up a time and have a more uh, deep conversation around data? And then also your role around product and, and kind of what that mindset means, because I think that's really interesting. So that's where we're going to be headed today. And maybe let's just start with data. So data itself, I mean, that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people, and it can be very overwhelming, especially when it comes to nonprofits. But kind of can you help hone us in a little bit on on what you think data is uh, and what it is crucial for nonprofits in particular? Absolutely. Yeah, it, that's a big topic. <laughs> and, and you're right. It means a lot of things to a lot of people. And I think that, you know, in the past, few years, a lot has changed in the nonprofit tech landscape. Um, And two things have really changed dramatically. One is there's so much more data than there used to be, just Mm. kind of volume of data that we're seeing. And two is there's a lot more technology tools out there. Um, So there's a lot more options. There's a lot more ways that supporters can engage with you. And those all show up as more and more and more tools. Mm. Um, so that's more and more data to manage. So on right. the on the first point around kind of the volume of all of this data, um, that shows up in our everyday lives too, right? So most people wear a fitness tracker. So every time you move, you're generating right. data. And I have a Peloton at my house. So every time I ride, I'm generating data, which is really, really cool. Um but that can be overwhelming too of you right. know, how do we harness this data? And so um, I was an English major in college. So I, there's a famous Coleridge poem, the rhyme of the ancient mariner. And there's a line in there where he says um, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. Hmm. And the sailors are on this boat. They're stranded at sea, but they can't drink the ocean water. 
And that's such a wonderful analogy to data because we, hmm. we're surrounded by it. We maybe feel like we're swimming in it. Um, but if we can't create value from that data, yeah, then it's kind of not serving its purpose. Yeah. Right. Um, and then on top of that, the fact that we have all this data, it can also be kind of chaotic and unruly. Uh, so there's a really excellent article in the New York Times about this new job of data scientists, this new industry. And they were saying that actually it's not that glamorous because <laughs> they're spending upwards of 80% of their time uh, just kind of cleaning it up and getting it to a state where they can get to those really use- useful nuggets. Um, and so they kind of, they likened it to, well, actually we're data janitors. I like that. (laughs) Which doesn't quite have the same ring, you know, (laughs) but I I think it it speaks to this problem of, you know, how do we take all this unruly data and make sense out of it? Um, So, and then on the second point around like all of these new technology tools that are out there, um, I think this idea that, you know, one system to rule them all is, uh, kind of been proven not to be the case. And what we're seeing is more of a trend towards best of breed, where people are choosing the right tools for the right job. Um, or, you know, they have kind of that core CRM that's really stable, but then they need to be agile and nimble and spin up new tech on top of it uh, for something that's, that's brand new that they need to be able to do. Um, and so, you know, we should be able to do that, but then we have challenges with, okay, now we got to integrate all these systems. We have a more complex IT footprint and things like that. So, um, so those are all some pretty big changes that we've seen in the sector that, that cause it to be overwhelming. Yeah. Um, so there's a bunch of things in there, uh, that we could kind of offshoot and talk about, but I think the, the you know, underlining theme, uh, at least that relates between the two or when we look at it, is something around like mindset or, you know, value or importance. Because it seems like if we uh, truly value it, then we'll make sure that it's clean. (laughs) And then if we really want to use it, well, then I think pretty quickly you come to the realization then we have to use kind of more of those best of breed solutions. I think that's the best solution in terms of actually using the data. So, Maybe you've worked with tons of nonprofits and really focused on how to like do these types of approaches. What are some of the mindset or like cultural ingredients that you've seen in good clients or maybe not seen in in bad clients or or what is it that we need to think about differently about data so that we're not drowning in it? Yeah, really good question. So um, we don't want to just kind of hoard data (laughs) because it's there. It doesn't necessarily mean we need to track it, manage it. And so I, I think you're right. It, um, if you can start with the end goal in mind of what you want to do with that data um, and really ask some, some interesting questions internally around, you know, is this going to have, what impact is this going to have on the supporter experience? Yeah. If we were to start collecting this data, what would we do with it? Um, you know, and then as a simple example, if, you decided that you wanted to start managing a certain set of data. If you start with the end in mind and you start with the impact, 
that might be, well, we would like to report on this data. Okay, well, what does that report look like? And then you sort of reverse engineer your way back to the data that you would need to fulfill that and the structure of the data as well to support that in the system, right? Instead of starting with the data itself, we start with that end goal. Like you said, it's, it's a mindset thing. Yeah. And one of the tips I've heard before, and I think it makes sense, you know, you basically ask the question like, so what kind of like three times (laughs) and then it'll get you to like what it's really about, especially with dealing with like high level metrics. It's like, okay, fundraising's up. Okay. Like, so what? Well, it's up. So like, let's see why uh, fundraising was up. Okay. We've, we received more in this, you know, donor segment. Okay. So what, you know, and like it actually gets down. And then once you figure out like, oh, actually this one campaign where we did this strategy was resulting, you know, 60%. And it's like that three levels deep or just kind of going deeper that I feel like a lot of organizations are still struggling to get to. It's like, well, we're, we finally can see what our donor retention rate is. Cool. But that's not very actionable. Forty percent, twenty percent. What do you do with that information? So, um, mm-hmm. you know, we need actionable insights, not just like data insights. Um, yeah. May- maybe uh, like getting more specific. Uh, what are some kind of common mistakes you've seen with organizations with how they use or approach data, or maybe pro tips on on how to do it better? Yeah, I think um, just getting back to fundamental is is something that we can all do. I think there's there's two areas there. One is data help. And and the second is um, integration and access to data. So on the data help side of the house, I mean, it, that is just a pervasive problem yeah. that unfortunately doesn't go away. Um, you don't clean up once and then you're done. It's, it's, it's got to be a continual thing that you're just kind of, incorporating into your normal practices. Um, and there's a real cost to that bad data as well, right? So there's yep. been reports published that, you know, the cost of reconciling a duplicate record is between 10 and $20 um, per, per pair, which is, that can really add up. Um, and then BlackRock did a really interesting study where they, they said that misspelling a donor's name uh, can result in 10% decrease in retention, 12% decrease in giving. And so if you think about, you know, when people go online and they're, they're donating and they're keying in their information, they're basically doing data processing um, and they tend to make a lot of mistakes. They, yeah. you know, you see the data come in in all caps and they're screaming at you and then you see it come in <laughs> in all lowercase or, or they've mistyped their own name, you know, fat fingers and things like that. And those mistakes are pretty easy to make. Uh, but if we don't be really diligent about keeping that data clean and maintaining the accuracy and the integrity of that data in your CRM system, then it has a real... Um, impact on your ability to, to connect with those people. Yeah. What I, what I like about both of those points is that you quantified it in like, um, cost basically. I know like on online fundraising, which is our world, a lot of times it's seen as like frivolous or not essential because it, you know, only 10% comes in online. Uh, so 
we need to do a better job quantifying either what you're losing. Here's dollars walking out the door with your crappy donation page every single day. And it's somewhat similar for data. So it can seem like, oh, yeah, of course we need data. And as soon as you start saying every time you misspell someone's name, you could be right. harming your lifetime value rate. Every time you have a duplicate record, that's doubling your like $10 per thing. Then people can start saying like, oh, my gosh, there's a real hard cost. But when it stays kind of – you know, in, in nebulous land, I think it makes it hard for people to understand the value of it. And so I think that's our job <laughs> is to articulate that better. And then I think hopefully that starts shifting the mindset a bit when it, you know, starts hitting the bottom line directly. Maybe then people will take notice. Hopefully that's my hope. I don't know <laughs> if that will happen. Yeah. Or not. No, I, I completely agree. And I think the that's why I especially love the name example, because Every that's very uh, visceral. I mean, everyone yeah. like their own name. You know, if I called you Brody, I don't think <laughs> I don't think you'd like that very much. That'd be a tough. That'd so, be a tough start. Yeah. <laughs> right. I mean, I think everyone can kind of relate to it and put themselves yeah. in that situation. Yeah. Well, um, there's so, probably. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say so. So, data health is a really big category. And then data integration right. would be another really big category. And, you know, as long as you have data that is not captured in your CRM, whether that's in spreadsheets or in people's heads, or you don't even have it at all, or hmm. um, locked up kind of in other peripheral systems, then you're lacking that complete view of your supporter. Um, right. And so you're, you're missing kind of key ingredients in how you're able to talk to them, how you understand them, how you're able to tailor and personalize their experience for your organization. That's another really big gap. Yeah. Yeah. I was just uh, talking this morning. So we're building out dashboards for our clients and it it's, should be simple to just show, you know, how things are. Uh, when it comes to fundraising and life cycle. Uh, but it's tough because there's multiple data sources. So the transaction records live over here, but where they came from lives in something like Google Analytics for online. But we want to know engagement rates, which come from their website, which you can get through HubSpot or their email program, which they're sending through MailChimp. And none of these systems necessarily are fully integrated in and of themselves. So it either takes uh, the products to do that or it takes someone, in this case, us, like pulling these threads together. The good news is, like you said, I think the best of breed type products at least give you a thread to pull. (laughs) There's still a lot of products that don't give you many threads. So it's hard to even take that approach, right? Is is that – you said that's a a change. Is that a trend that you think will continue to change? More APIs, more integrations, all that stuff? A hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. Good. <laughs> good. That's great. That's good news for everyone, I think. It is. You're right. But you're right. Kind of like step number one is just the ability to to capture and collect that data. And and so to your point, there are now systems and tools that do that in a really excellent way. So we've kind of gotten over that, that hurdle there. Right. But then we have to figure out, okay, how do we combine that data? How do yeah. we have it in a way that's accessible for everyone so that they can actually act on it. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes that means in your example, you're saying, well, we're kind of having to, to piece it together ourselves, right? So you're getting there, but it's not as automated as it could be. 
So then you're probably not doing that as frequently as you'd like. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, similar to like the data janitor thing, I think it takes about eight to 12 hours to just map the different sources and where it goes. Once it's actually mapped, then it takes less than a minute for it to kind of, you know, get synced up. But getting it clean, getting it mapped, understanding how it works, that's actually, you know, the hard part of the 80% of what they're actually working on just to get it usable. Then that's actually relatively easy once it's, you know, once it gets to that point. So, you know, the common uh, thread, whether it's data or donation pages, tools or tools, you know, it's the human side behind them that's often the biggest barrier to actually running things. Hey everyone, this is Nathan from Next After. I wanted to take a quick second to make sure you knew about an opportunity to get new insights and ideas for how to use data to grow generosity and improve the bottom line for your organization. On September 24th and 25th, hundreds of fundraisers are gathering in Denver, Colorado for the fourth annual Nonprofit Innovation and Optimization Summit. While the event will cover lots of topics related to online fundraising and nonprofit marketing, there are two speakers that are specifically devoted to data. So Chris Mercer of MeasurementMarketing.io, he's going to help all of us learn how to get the essential and important data that we need to make good decisions in our marketing and fundraising. And then Leah Pika, who's a renowned digital analytics guru, is going to share her formula for taking that data, telling a story with it, and turning it into something actionable. You can check out more about the summit, see who else is speaking, watch previous sessions, and get your tickets all at niosummit.com. That's niosummit.com. Hope to see you there. Maybe that's a good segue into the other thing I want to talk about, which is really like product development, something I don't know a lot about, but something you do. Um, you know, I've, I've seen in the last maybe three, four years this kind of uh, rise in product mindset and how this should apply to not necessarily just tech companies, but other organizations. So I want to spend the, the next half of this kind of conversation talking about that. So, um, I mean, you've spent your career working in product management and development specifically for nonprofits, but can you just tell us what product management kind of in your world actually means before we, you know, kind of go any further? Sure. Yeah, it's it's funny because there's kind of a running joke in the product manager community that no one really knows what we do, <laughs> and you'll get a million different answers to that question. Um, but I, I have two ways that I like to think about it. One is the product manager is the CEO of the product. And I think sometimes people take issue with that because they say, well, the product manager doesn't really manage people or they don't really own the P&L or things like that. But kind of semantics aside, um, it means that the product manager needs to have an owner mindset and they contribute and participate in all parts of the business because the product touches everything from Hmm. Um, product development, to sales and marketing, to delivery, to support, to the customer, to everything. So um, so I like that way to describe it. But then the other way I like to describe it is a product manager's job is to create value for customers and create value for the company. Um, And it's really that simple if you want to kind of roll it up super high level. So we create value for customers by building products that solve problems that people are willing to pay for. And that in turn creates value for the business. But in that order, right? So if we focus on solving problems, 
then the value for the business will come. That should really be kind of how a product manager operates and thinks is hyper-focused on the customer and hyper-focused on problems. Yeah. Well, uh, I want to take that a, a level deeper, but even just in those two definitions, which I think are great, even the fact that there's an owner and works across departments instantly, I can see why that type of uh, role is successful where we are today. Because to think that, you know, website or digital just lives within digital and doesn't touch other things or like that's folly. It doesn't make sense, right? So much Mm -hmm. of work within nonprofits, especially it traverses across, but our structures are very, you know, siloed or linear. So to have someone who owns, which again, sometimes there's too much like, oh, let's, we're all responsible. Like, that's great. But someone needs to actually own this friggin' thing to make sure that it's awesome and then work across. Just those two things I think is, is huge, huge, important. Um, and then what does it mean to like deliver value to customers? Like what are some of the tactics or techniques? Cause obviously that's hugely important, but what does that actually mean? How do you go about doing that? Yeah, that's the fun part of the job. That's a really fun part. So, um, so what we do is we follow a methodology where we, uh, go out into the market and spend time with customers and really deeply learn and understand how they work, what they value, what their problems are. Um, so Steve Blank is kind of the, the godfather of the, the lean movement, and he coined the phrase, get out of the building. Hmm. Uh, and then other people say it as nothing important happens in the building. And so it's all just to say that uh, instead of kind of Inside out thinking, you really need to do outside in and um, make sure you understand what's going on in the market. So that's, that's first and foremost. Um, but what we, we do is a lot of um, qualitative and quantitative data analysis. On the qualitative side, you know, it can be going on site and sitting with people and watching them work and observing and really deeply understanding how they work um, and, and interviewing and things like that. But but then we take what we learn there and we form a hypothesis and we prototype. So instead of investing a ton of money and time into building something out, we very, very quickly and inexpensively sketch an idea. I love to do it on paper to start hmm. because people tend to give you more realistic responses because they don't think you've invested a lot in it. Right. They think, well, you just spent five minutes on this. So I'm going to be brutally honest, <laughs> which is absolutely <laughs> interesting what we're after. Right. Like we want we want that honesty. Huh. And sometimes if something looks too good, people think they're going to kind of hurt your feelings. Yeah, that's um, a good point. I haven't thought about it. Yeah, I like that. So, so that's that's something that we do. And we can put those ideas out there. Test. Iterate. Test. Iterate until we get to a solution and then we build. So we don't write a single line of code until it's been validated in the market and we know it's going to succeed. Um, and so I've, I've worked with some, some really great discovery coaches over the years. And one of them pointed out to me that um, you need to ask dumb questions. Hmm. And so, so let's pretend that, I give you a cupcake, right? And you say, that's awesome. Thank you. That looks wonderful. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking in my head, 
yeah, it is awesome because it's a cupcake, right? And so it would seem to me dumb to ask you, what's so great about that, Brady? <laughs> right. Why is that so awesome? Because it's a cupcake, right? But if I do that, if I ask you that, then I'm going to learn something that I didn't know before. You might think it's awesome because you have a kid that has allergies, dairy allergy or something, right? right. I might think it's awesome because it's chocolate. Yeah. And so now I'm really understanding your motivation and your story that you're telling yourself about this cupcake. Yeah. And that's going to help me build a better solution that's tailored for what your motivations are. Yeah. So I think there's a good analogy there. Yeah. Um, to, to nonprofits. And, you know, we talk a lot about um, when we come up with ideas, it's really easy to fall in love with your idea. And you get kind of blinded by that love. Um, and so when somebody's agreeing with you that something's wonderful, it feels counterintuitive to dig in on that. So yeah. there's a lot of a lot of tricks in there that you can use to really truly understand how people are thinking. Yeah. Um I want to talk about the cupcake analogy, but that the piece of paper and getting brutal feedback, I think, is hugely extra important in nonprofits where we typically have very nice, generally very nice people, right? Where getting feedback and giving feedback can be can be really tough, but um, we we need that and we need to hear it. And I know um, uh, Ed Catmull, who was founder of Pixar, wrote the book Creati- Creativity Inc. and tells a famous story like. One of their, you know, virtue is you have to kill your babies. Like if it's your idea, you have to be willing to hear that and like kill this bad idea. Uh, and if that's the feedback and then, you know, iterate on it and, and make it better. Um, and the thing that locked in when you're using the, the cupcake analogy. So we do tons and tons of testing, right? If saying, yes, this is what donors say, but what do they actually do? So, yes, this is what customers say, but what do they actually do? But in that cupcake analogy for us to know, was it the frosting? Was it the ingredient? We would have to lay out. A hundred different cupcakes and watch people eat cupcakes before we could figure out exactly why they were choosing that one cupcake, which could take forever and tons of batches. Whereas if you do good qual, um, um, good like qualitative research first to hear if eighty people say it's the frosting, well then we can start with that test of saying, well let's see if it's the frosting, right? So I think that kind of combination of qualitative and quantitative is really important. We, we skew often quantitative because there's a lack of quantitative testing in nonprofit space, but the qualitative can shorten your time frame, give you much more valuable insights to, to start from testing. If you just start from scratch and testing, it could take forever, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I think people are sometimes uncomfortable with qualitative data Yeah, because they want it to be statistically significant. Right. Exactly. And it's not going to be right? It's, that is more of the art side of data. That said, you will absolutely see patterns in qualitative data and you yeah. know it when you see it. And then, like you said, that can give you a more directionally accurate place to drill in using quantitative data, right? Yeah. So kind of the combination of those two things together is going to reduce your cycle time in a big way. And, and the hard thing about quantitative data it doesn't tell you why yeah. something's happening, right? Like you can see, oh, wow, uh, my conversion rate is super high on this. But it's not giving you those all those like really rich nuggets behind the why. 
Yeah. And the other thing, the few times that I have done some qualitative, what's nice is you get some kind of like force factor, whereas most quantitative, especially testing is binary. They did this or they didn't do this. Whereas if you hear on the phone, you can hear someone's kind of emotion or how they light up, or you can get more of an emotional sense of like, wow, they really care about this. Whereas when you just analyze data, it's hard to get a sense of how powerful. Now, maybe average gift on some things can show how much, but you know, we don't have a lot of really good insight into how powerful sometimes someone can actually think and that can come through in qualitative which I think is interesting too um, mm-hmm. so I, I think this whole area like lean and product mindset is super super interesting and something that nonprofits uh, can and need to employ more of like what are some of the ways that um, you know you can see this approach making sense for nonprofits or how they can go about uh, applying these types of concepts for fundraising or marketing or things like that yeah, I think uh, a phrase that we hear, I, I feel like I hear quite often is know your supporter. And I think sometimes that is through quantitative data um, or I'm looking at the data in my CRM system. So I'm going to a meeting. I want to be kind of uh, informed going into that conversation so that I'm seen as knowledgeable about this person and and those kinds of things. But the other way to think about that is what we were talking about. And that's this, this posture of learning and this curiosity. Mm. So if I'm going to that meeting, absolutely, I should be informed and I should be prepared, right? It doesn't mean we don't want to do those things, but I should get curious and I should be willing to be uncomfortable to ask those what I might perceive as dumb questions, right? Right. Around, you know, why is this important to you? Why yeah. do you give? Why do you support our organization? To get to those motivations is really, really key. Yeah. Um, and so it's kind of a different level of knowing your supporter yeah. and being truly curious about what they have to say because they're the ultimate authority. Yeah. You know? No, that's a great point. Like if you know my name's Brady, I gave a hundred dollars in February. You don't you don't know me. <laughs> like, you know, the classic data points that we often have or easily collect in older models in particular. Like you know a couple things that I've done, but you don't actually know why I did or anything about me. And that's the huge opportunity kind of tying data. And again, when we take this approach and get curious What's neat is we can start seeing what types of things do they read? What kind of things do they click? How long do they engage with different types of content? Like this, they're starting to show us this is what they seem to be interested in. And when we layer in surveys and what they think and what they're actually doing, we can actually, you know, get to know these folks a lot better. But curiosity is the key there, I think, you know. Mm-hmm. Being really curious Absolutely. or not just saying, oh, we know because we have this data point, but like constantly being curious. It's not, you know, oh, I was curious and now I have an answer. It's like, no, no, you're always, you know, curious, right? Always curious because everybody's story is different all the time. I mean, yeah, you're going to you're going to learn something. And that's the point of yeah. what we do in product discovery is the objective is learning. Yeah, you're not you're not just trying to validate something that you thought you already knew. Your yeah, goal right. is to learn something. Yeah. And I think the, the culture of uh, learning and curiosity is, is almost more important than, yeah, the number of statistically significant, you know, 
results that you actually get. Just adopting that mindset of of kind of learning and curiosity is massive. Um, yeah, and then you that, also get all these you get all these great stories too that you can then take back to your organization, right? And you can tell those stories internally, and it really breathes life into data. When you can say, well, I talked to this person and they said, and you tell that story, it just, it's yeah. a whole other level of incorporating that. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a whole other conversation of podcasts of like, how do we actually kind of tell stories with data? Cause no one wants to sit down and just look at chart after chart after chart or read a book with just stats. You know, we have mm-hmm. to find ways to, you know, use, use narrative in our, in our data. Um, exactly. What are, you mentioned uh, a few kind of like people or resources, but if someone's like, "Wow, this sounds really interesting," I haven't really heard of this before. Like, where where can I go to learn more about kind of product mindset or this a- approach? Do you have any kind of tips or resources? Sure. Uh, so, Lean Startup by Eric Ries is an excellent, excellent book um, with a lot of kind of you know, agile principles and thinking and mindset and, and lean and all that. Uh, and then within specifically the product management domain, Marty Kagan is in a wonderful, wonderful mm-hmm. resource. He has a blog on his website. Um, Silicon Valley Products Group, I think is the name of his company. Uh, but if you look Marty Kagan, you'll find it as well. He's got a book called Inspired. And then Teresa Torres, She's a discovery coach. She has a lot of really great content, videos, blogs about interviewing techniques and mm. a lot of things like that too. So all good resources. Awesome. Those are great. Um, we'll, we'll be sure to include those in the, in the show notes as well. Um, well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Uh, I know we kind of like barely scratched the surface on data and then kind of barely scratched the surface on, on product management. So maybe like one parting question um, from your vantage point, but what do you think we can do to grow, improve, and optimize generosity? I love that you asked everybody that question. Um, So somebody, so I have very, very young kids and I think kind of, I think that starts in the home with Mm. how we teach our children to think about giving and somebody shared with me recently um, this approach to teaching kids about managing money where, you know, they, they have chores and you give them a small allowance and then they have three jars. They have one for um, giving, one for saving, and one for spending. Hmm. So that, you know, when they get that money, they have to divvy it into those three buckets. And so it's teaching them that giving is just what we do. It's just part of this home and how we work and what we do and who we are. And so uh, it's teaching them that giving is part of your identity, which is really key. And I'm a huge Seth Godin fan. I read his blog every day. If he can publish it every day, I can read it every day. (laughs) And and he likes to say, um, people like us do things like this. Hmm. which is um, all about identity. And everything that we do is either strengthening our internal narrative or weakening it. And then we're not going to do those things. And so 
you know, everyone kind of acts in accordance with that internal narrative that they have about the story they're telling themselves about who they are. And so I think um, we need to have this identity that we are givers and that that can start in our homes, but really it should be beyond that into our communities, into our workplaces, everywhere. Um, yeah. That should just be core to who we are. That's great. Um, yeah. And then the, the other, so I recently met with a fundraiser from my alma mater and she was showing me my lifetime giving. Okay. Which was great. But why should I have to wait every couple of years to have that experience, you know, to be able to mm-hmm. see that. So, um, so I use the mint financial app. Mm-hmm. I love it. You can see all of your accounts, your savings, your investments, all that kind of stuff. And I always wonder, like, why is there not a giving index in here for me mm-hmm. of my lifetime giving across all of the organizations that I've supported? Mm-hmm. And, you know, some cool metrics, like what is my giving in relation to my income? Mm-hmm. And it really like making it a first class thing that people can see and have access to yeah. so that it's reinforcing that internal narrative that you're a giver. Yeah. That would be so cool. Yeah. Well, okay. That's like a whole nother conversation. Uh, <laughs> Cause the, the, the software company that I work for in, in Canada, that was kind of the mission where we're trying to do is basically taking a donor advice fund model, but uh, applying it so you can do it for five bucks um, and as long as you gave through, that's the problem that back to data, as long as you gave through that, that donor advice fund to any charity in Canada, you could, you could manage all of it. So at the end of the year, I print off one tax receipt, but I can see how my giving grew or not. I can look back over all my history and see where it went. But where it breaks down is someone just came to my door yesterday from the Red Cross and got me. And so now I made a donation. Now that's outside of the platform and in theory I could like manually log it and then but now it's you know really cumbersome for me but I think the mm-hmm. you know similarly like data can help shape behavior I do think that's true with with giving too like if we knew how little or how much we were giving especially in relation to peers or I've said if we just wear a sign around our neck that says how much we've given to charity that year I guarantee you charitable giving will grow it's just so much yeah. happens in the dark and we don't even know and so that's a that's a really interesting thing and a problem for really smart product-minded people like yourself to solve. <laughs> no big, no yeah. big deal. <laughs> yeah, no pressure. No pressure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, awesome. Thank you so much for taking some time and, and sharing so much of uh, your experience and wisdom with us. Um, where can people learn out, learn more about you and your work? Yeah, so people can um, check out omaticsoftware.com and learn more about our solutions around uh, data health and integration. And then if you want to reach out to me directly, you can. It's emily.dalton at omaticsoftware.com. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Hey, this is Brady, and I just want to say thank you for listening to the Generosity Freak Show. If you want to get all future episodes, please be sure to subscribe at generosityfreakshow.com, or you can just search the Generosity Freak Show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever. 
you get your podcasts. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have comments, questions, feedback, you can email us at podcast at next after. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the Generosity Freak Show is produced by Next After, where I work. It, Next After is an online fundraising research lab that works with nonprofits to help them grow their online fundraising. And our mission is to unleash the most generous generation in the history of the world. You can learn more about us and what we're up to and see our latest research at nextafter.com. Lastly, this show would not be possible without my co-host, Tim Kachuriak, and our amazing mixologist and producer, Nathan Hill. So many, many thanks to them. So thank you again for listening, and we will see you next week.